toast. Has he, has he finished yet? What? He... I like the glasses though. You're looking tremendously. You're like a boffin. Just very tired. Hot boffin. I'm very tired to look awful if I take my glasses off. Bearing in mind, we spoke yet the last week about the Steve having the most attractive background. Uh, all three of the other people in this group have made an effort to improve their backgrounds. Rory is showing us a new room in his house, which I'm very pleased about, although a lamp we already knew about. Chinch is not at all, obviously, using his England caps to cover some naked nails that he found. Oh, oh, oh did you see them? Oh, sorry. It's, it's a private room. That but, DIY said that, I, that I said that I was going to do, I've eventually done, but I've realised that my head and headphones mm. completely cover up all the effort that was made. Does anybody else oh, have oh, nice. freshly baked bread under a tea towel on their uh, side? No, no, Stephen, you didn't need to no, approve yours. No, no, I haven't. How did the conversation go between you and your wife when you found some naked nails in your office and you said to Nikki, is there anything we could put up? And she said, oh, there's a couple of these old dusty caps lying around. Well, they, they weren't. They were, this is obviously Prim, was Primrose's room, so there were little things for Primrose. So the, the nails were that they, they needed covering and they were going to get covered by probably something else. But Nikki's gone on this mad spree of moving everything around. The, we're changing all the furniture, moving them because we've got a free house now and the caps that were downstairs. Free? I'll buy it. Uh, not that kind of free. It's it's not an open house. It's a quiet house, but she's moving everything around. So my caps that were on a torso downstairs, not a, a person torso, a, a, a statue torso, uh, have been moved up in, hung on a nail. So that's that. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to improve on this. It's, it yes. needs to be improved. I There's would suggest a, that, that is shirt in the middle. A demotion. Like that. that is a demotion. Yeah. It, um, what hung on a nail? How many other former England nationals with seven caps would hang their caps on a nail? In a former nursery. Finch, have you got any other like memorabilia from your career? I've got my FA Cup final winning shirt framed and my England debut shirt framed in the loft, both in the loft. <laughs> but you don't have like a collection of shirts that you swapped with, with illustrious I did, opponents. I did. I did have a collection of shirts, but then I gave them to Ed Garvey. Do you remember Ed Garvey? You remember Garvey, Hugh, don't you? He was a shirt collector. So I gave him all my Decanio and Zola and all my, all my shirts. They weren't signed shirts. They were just, you know, Zola's shirt, Decanio's shirt. Worn. That makes them much yeah, more Yeah, they valuable. were. They, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I made a mistake there. Sorry. That Sorry. is almost as an egregious a mistake as it was when I, at the age of about eight or nine, decided that Star Wars figures weren't cool anymore, so just gave them to uh, a family mm. friend. Not, but you were at least in that correct... <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, it's not I wasn't. Quite the same, is it? I it's shouldn't have given I... my shirts away. You should have melted down your Star Wars figures. Were I to still have those Star Wars figures, they would be worth almost as much as a Zola non non signed match worn shirt from the mid nineties. They wouldn't be I cool might, though, Hugh. They'd just be away. valuable. I, yeah. Let's not get those two things confused. Listen, pretty much everything cause... I have is cool or valuable, and never both. Uh, yeah, I just need to go. And there's a higher car getting collected. Hold on. <laughs> Keep talking. What? What? <laughs> Where does he live? Avis? Chinch's, Chinch's life basically revolves around hire cars being dropped off or collected. Hang on, are we missing something here? Is, is he not actually, when he says they've got a, like a free house, does he mean that they've, they've converted the bottom of it to some sort of hire car company? <laughs> and no, that he's a living, garage. He's now living above a Europe car and that he's, he's gone down just to fill in the paperwork for someone who, want, who needs a car for three days around Manchester. I want Sorry, to know. We, we, we did promise you a punto or better, but all we've got... <laughs> It's, it is a punto, a cut and shut punto. In fairness, Chinchy's house is closer to the airport than some of the higher companies' airport, uh, airport showrooms or whatever. This is all adding up. Because, you know, I mean, I know he does a lot of work, but it can't, 
he can't earn enough money from from his sort of occasional gigs on Sky's football league coverage to keep him in the expensive lifestyle to which he's become accustomed. Maybe he's running a sort of Hinch Hurts thing. He's he's got some sort of company. Do you think that the torso is his receptionist? I think that might and be his receptionist. And that's why the caps had to move. The torso is now the receptionist for your dodgy underground car hire company. Do you, do you, he's now. talking about this since I've been, I've been gone for about three minutes. He's you've still doing, talking about you've been, it. Chinch, are you, are you running a car hire company? No. What would you think that? Have you done, did you go downstairs to greet a customer and complete the paperwork and just take them for a quick once round the car and take pictures of it with an iPad to prove where the scratches are? He's not flying to Tenerife or anything. I don't know what you're talking about. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Dark Side of the Moon, Stephen Wyeth, Eau Claire de la Lune, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Button Moon. The food is... <laughs> Um, to be revealed, because in a completely symbiotic and not at all contrived way, the food forms part of the soccer story today. Speaking of which, Chinch, the football is... Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, I think we're talking... I'm going to have a guess here. Existentialism? <laughs> uh, maybe as it applies a little bit more to football rather than just the... the but, I'm, but I'm right. ...in of itself. Uh, we're right. wondering what the reaction Am I right? to Project I'm going to talk over you. Am I right? about football, particularly in England, and whether it might hint at a widening gap between product and consumer. You're getting there, Chinch, you're getting there. And if that gap is indeed widening, might there be a time in the near future that the relationship between the game and its fans is stretched beyond breaking point? It is not just PVP, but also PPV, and the sense that those running and broadcasting the game might be taking supporters for granted. And while that is, of course, something that would be contested at least by half of the group gathered here today is there a chance that football is at a crossroads change potentially with one of those paths looking particularly dark it might almost be existentialism it's the most thriving and most watched sport on the planet but can football die and would football be the reason why uh, that is all to come uh, get in touch. Setpiecemenu.gmail.com is our email address. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, we start with this from Colin Boucher, a name that you'll recognize. He emails to make two points. The first is explicit, and we'll come to that shortly. The second is implicit, and it is this. If you say something nice about us eloquently, and it complements a body of correspondence work, you become a buffalo. I stress that is implicit, not an explicit policy. So, Colin, if you aren't already, because I've very much forgotten, congratulations! You are our latest buffalo. Um, that list, by the way, is still not in existence. So, if anybody could uh, email us to tell us whether you're a buffalo or not, we'll put you on the list. Meanwhile, well, here that is, is, that is... That is a fool's errand, that. You're opening yourself up to all sorts of false claims. <laughs> yes, I will not believe anybody. I'll have to have it corroborated on which number of the podcast were you it's made like a buffalo. It's like when somebody returns a car to Chinch and they claim that they haven't done any damage, but then he finds out there is damage. He's frozen. It's because de downstairs the, um, the system is, is, is overloading because there's so many Fiat Puntos. He's back. Am I, am I back? back? Am I, you're back. Am I back? Meanwhile, here Someone's is... Someone's using the credit card machine downstairs. <laughs> here is Colin's email, which should not be seen, as I remind you, as any explicit evidence of anything whatsoever. Dear Hugh, Steve, Rory, and the wonderful Chinch. He's looking for a free high car. Love the show. It's really excellent in that. 200 episodes in, and as a loyal listener, I wanted to wish you well on this occasion. I can't remember when I first discovered the pod, but then I've been in lockdown for six months, so time is well and truly not a thing anymore. However, it has now become a solid and unmovable part of my podcast schedule. Yes, I do have a schedule. With a lack of social contact over the last six months, podcasts have genuinely been the thing to cheer me up 
or at least kill some time. Your podcast is something to look forward to every week, and I have genuinely had some comfort in listening to people talk about the sport I love in a way that me and my friends would, probably wouldn't get away with a monologue, to be honest. So thank you for being part of Keeping Me Going. Hoping you're keeping well. That is from Colin, our newest or maybe oldest, I'm not entirely sure because I can't remember, Buffalo. That's nice. The people who listen do seem to like it, don't they? It, it just would be useful if they sort of told more people about it. <laughs> mm. Because that, that would massage our egos even further. But do you think that if we got to the big time, it might dilute, dilute our quality, like Gary Neville? <laughs> when Gary Neville was just a football pundit, he was excellent. But now that he appears to be some sort of political figure... Who, who was taking it upon himself to solve all of the world's problems. And to build it's all of Manchester City centre. I think he's a world overlord. I think he that's, is, that's he's exactly reaching for overlord status, but it's a difficult yeah, yeah, job yeah. overlording. It's a difficult it's, job. Can it the is. podcast ever get big enough that the four of us are stood on a plot of land in Manchester City centre in high-vis jackets and hard hats, deciding how we want our hotel constructed? Well, it wouldn't be a hotel, would it? It would be set-piece menu tower... At the top would be a restaurant, and all of the 37 floors would just be hire cars. <laughs> it's it to be a, a cesspit below, and yes, a hire car station above. That's, that's what we get. Yeah. Again, it's a dual role for the company as well. So, you know, we, we're dealing in shit, but there's, there's money in shit. Uh, talk, talking of taking on too much and spreading yourself a little too thinly, here's John Manasso, who you might remember started the whole Decatur thing a while back. He's in Georgia and writes this. As I turned on the recent England-Belgium game on ESPN's streaming app, ESPN+, Plus, a familiar voice was doing the co-commentary. Wait, what day is this, I wondered? Could this be the Iceland-Romania game that our favourite former Everton, former Manchester City, former Sheffield Wednesday, former England man was broadcasting with Steve? No, I thought, that's not Steve's voice. That's Peter Drury, and it wasn't his usual co-commentator, Jim Beglin, as we're accustomed to hearing in the United States. It was, in fact, Chinch. The commentary was incisive, timely, and on point. There were no stories about Glenn Hoddle admiring his physical abilities. No wondering what the topic of the day's show was because he had failed to look up the group chat. No stories about microwaving hot dogs for lunch. Just relevant commentary and extremely well done. Here's one American voice in favour of hoping that ESPN or whatever American broadcaster it might be chooses to employ Chinch a lot more regularly in our broadcasts to enrich our enjoyment of the game. That's John Manasso from Decatur in Georgia. That's a, that's a lovely, but this is what's great about the podcast. I can vent my, my, my joy of hot dogs here, but clearly I have to be seen to be professional when I work for other people. So I, I can't really bring in boiling hot dogs on the hob in the England-Belgian game. What can happen in a game that I could probably get that in with? It would be tricky, wouldn't it? Very, very tricky indeed. I don't want to be seen as a clown. It is no surprise that the name of the hot dog company that you decide to use is? Is it Herter? Which is very similar to? Car Hire Herter. Company Hertz. Oh, exactly. well, it's not really, is it? It's all coming together. It uh, is next. close. To Robbie Wells, who helped us in advance of SPM 199 on team talks and press conferences. But on account of the fact that I shamefully paraphrased a very well-made point to just a 10-second waffle during that episode, here he is in his own words on last week's program about Project Big Picture. Chunch and the gang, he starts. Happy 200th. I would have got you something, but you know. Top-notch pod last time out. I tend to determine the quality by how many of my own opinions are reflected. And once again, Steve is the moral compass of the three other wayward points, I should add, of his compass, not the SPM team. Uh, Robbie has a proposal about voting rights, which um, was perhaps the idea to receive the most widespread opprobrium originally. So he says this, my voting proposal is that it remains one club, one vote, but within that, 
you can only have a vote if you have completed 12 months in the league prior to that season's start. So no vote for Aston Villa and Sheffield United this season, but they would if they stayed in next season. By my rudimentary calculation, says Robbie, there would be, as a minimum, 12 clubs, maximum 15, with an equal vote. With simple majority rules, seven or eight votes would be needed to pass a proposal, meaning the current top six would have to sway the vote of at least one or two of the great unwashed to get their greedy way. On this basis, the big clubs would have, in effect, a greater sway than they do at present, and their argument of transient clubs who are just along for the ride is diminished slightly. Cheers for all the great work. Robbie Wells, P.S. I love Rory. He is certainly not dopey, which is a reference to an intro to an email from last week's <laughs> Uh, I'm quite dopey today. I didn't sleep very well. Uh, I think that's quite a good idea. I did a, a piece basically stealing all of the things that we talked about previously on, on it Friday. Was and, it was noted. And using them for the greater glorification of my own career. <laughs> You'll be relieved to know that the piece got retweeted by the Football Supporters Association, which is a wonderful organisation, but does, well, so I guess it's social media following probably leans one way. And the point of the piece was that football's not very good at talking about change. And literally all of the reaction I had was, you don't need to change anything. It was amazing. Uh, I might just publish the replies to that column next week to kind of prove my point. But I think what's really important about all of this is that, that we talk about these potential changes, because there is, for all that the voting rights were really controversial, there is a logic to what the, the proposal behind Project Big Picture said, which is that, that the teams who are trying to, permanent members of the Premier League probably have a different perspective on, on what is good for the Premier League than the teams that come up and down and are there for a year and maybe two years. And I, the, the proposal that I came up with, or the idea that I came up with, was that you could maybe have effectively a permanent board of Premier League clubs, which would be the big six, Everton, because they've never been relegated, and Leicester, because they've previously been champions, as well as Blackburn, who were previous champions, in the unlikely event of promotion. Um, with three or four rotating members on a two or three yearly basis. And that that board would be used for, for long-term decisions, like the, the identity of the chief executive, TV deals, all that sort of stuff. Short-term stuff that applies only to one season, you just use the regular system, one team, one vote, all 20 get a vote on how the lead will be played. So if they decide they want to get rid of VAR for a season or only apply VAR to cases of mistaken identity in, in bank robberies, then, then maybe you, you get all 20 to vote on that. But if you you're voting, are we going to sell our TV rights to a streaming company in China or are we going to create our own TV channel? There is a, there is a point at which I think it's logical to say that the teams that are the long-standing members of the league probably need to think about that themselves rather than saying, well, this could be swayed by Watford and Huddersfield because that's not, their perspective is likely to be different and much more short-term. But I think the crucial thing is that people engage with these ideas because although you might have read the proposals that Project Big Picture made and hated all of them, they were, we, we all know that something needs to change, that stuff isn't working as it should be. So let's have a chat about change. But I just think, I think that what's happened since is really interesting, that it has all been shut down and we have, we've gone back into the territory of, of strategic reviews and David Bernstein and Gary Neville calling for government, governmental parliamentary kind of oversight and independent regulation. None of it's sexy, none of it's, none of it's immediate, none of it solves the problems that are, are now. And it kind of kicks it all into the long grass where we don't really have to look at it. And that's football's really good at that. We will uh, draw a line under the uh, 
the proposals set out in the proposal, um, but we will talk more in a moment about the reaction to those proposals. And I'm very interested uh, to note that uh, that's the kind of reaction that you got, uh, Rory, and uh, we'll perhaps ask you a little bit more about the nature of that reaction shortly. Now, no sooner than we, and likely we alone, completely sorted the handball issue on this very programme, along comes offside rearing its ugly head or shirt sleeve. Here are a couple of emails of quite a few, I should add, arising from the events from Goodison Park. James Sanderson says this. Dear the four friends who talk football over food, all hyphenated, so I did it quickly. I've long mulled over what my first correspondence would be, and I didn't think it would be this. I'm writing to you in the aftermath of the Merseyside derby. I am a Liverpool fan, and I'm struggling to process how the match went, possibly because, thanks to living in New Zealand, I'm sitting here at 8am, having had about three hours sleep. I react differently to goals, and it's due to the existence of VAR. For a while now, if ever Liverpool concede a goal, I cross my fingers and hope for some minor indiscretion in the build-up. A tight offside, a nick off a hand, a tug of the shirt. I didn't notice my reaction to Liverpool scoring goals changing too much, but as soon as Thiago played a brilliantly disguised pass to Sadio Mane, you could tell it would be a tight offside call. Mane pulls it back to Henderson, who slots it in. Cue wild celebrations for the Liverpool players, and me to cross my fingers and think, please don't let that be offside. If, hypothetically, Mane had been onside, my moment of, we've won the derby in the 93rd minute, wouldn't have been the ball hitting the back of the net. It would have been at seeing a freeze frame of build-up play with lines drawn all over it. It would be hypocritical of me to join the shouts of VAR is ruining football because I've always been in the camp of offside is offside no matter how tight. But I do want to acknowledge that my reaction to a goal being scored indisputably the most important thing in football, changing into something more akin to frantically searching a rule book when you narrowly lose a ball game to be able to say, well, actually, I wish safety and good health to you all. That's from James. And this is from Josh Hansen. SBM team assemble. Forgive me if this idea has been put forward before, but I felt I had to write in after the travesty of this weekend's offside decisions. Is this where I have to admit I'm a Liverpool fan? Yes, Josh, it is. It seems a simple solution to me, but perhaps I've missed something. So I thought I'd run it past the SPM sages before shouting it from the rooftops of South London. Why don't we give VAR officials a simple 45-second time limit to establish whether a player is offside or not? This surely removes any clear and obvious offside errors, as a trained official should be able to deduce a very high percentage of offsides within that time frame. This speeds up the decision-making and prevents the tedious wait during the line-drawing exercise we have to sit through as viewers, only to discover a sliver of sleeve was slightly in front of the last defender. I have a horrible feeling that I've missed something glaringly obvious, a bit like when you submit an amazing job application and after clicking send, you realise you've left a previous company's name on the cover letter. All the best, Josh from London. Now this feels like a perfect opportunity for us to throw off the dust sheet covering a feature that had until now been enjoying its little corner of the garden shed, undisturbed in its smug feeling that we'd all moved on from the issue of just over a year ago. Well, arise, Stephen Wyeth, because it is time for for sake, you don't go to VAR. This is where Stephen tries to deal with misrepresentations and misapprehensions about the video assistant referee and the technology they use. Stephen, the floor is yours. Josh interestingly used the word travesty there to describe the offside decision in the Merseyside derby. I'm not quite sure why. Why is it a travesty that a situation that it was proved, however tight, that Sadio Mane was in an offside position, it is a travesty that that goal was ruled out? Go on, you're not even going to let me finish. My answer to that would be, I don't think, certainly from the images we've seen, that he's offside. I just, I, 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 I cannot see how, and this is bringing, up, bringing back bad memories of all that talk of kind of margins of error and stuff. But so when, as I was there, and certainly from naked eye, didn't 
seem offside. Mane was also not facing towards the goal, which feels not. It's like it's, it's very obviously irrelevant, but it feels kind of relevant because there was no advantage to be gained from the fact that he was standing there. But they then produced the image, and normally, so the other day we saw the, the the goal ruled out at Leeds for Wolves, and you see the image, and as soon as you see the image, you think, if not necessarily, even that one was quite tight, but you think. Not necessarily, that's definitely offside, but you think, hmm, this is a bit borderline. They produced the image, and my initial reaction, as, as was the reaction of all the people sitting near me, was, well, that's onside. And then they just hold the image there, and suddenly the line changes from yellow to red, and you're a bit like, oh, no, apparently it's offside. I don't think there is any way from that image that they produced, and they may have had others that they've not released, that you can look at that and think that Sadio Mane is offside. Yeah. I, just, I just don't. That situation was particularly tight, and therefore particularly difficult to make a judgment on, but it does set us up nicely for the general point of these narrow offsides. The, the first thing to say on that, and, and look, nobody is satisfied about this, by the way, and if you, want, if you want to just continuously get angry about it, then fine, remain in that bubble of ignorance, or you can do the research into how they operate the, the VAR as, as far as offsides are concerned, and it is laser sharp, 3D precision image building stuff. So the kind of people that are complaining about, oh, they're just putting a ruler on the screen and guessing, are the same people that, in other way, in other aspects of their life, go, isn't technology amazing? Well, they're using incredible technology to make these decisions. Whether or not you are satisfied with that being the way that we reach offside conclusions, and I would suggest it isn't. But forget it, they are using incredible technology to decide whether or not a player is onside or offside. Also, follow Dale Johnson ESPN on Twitter, who deals with this stuff every Monday morning. He understands these things better than most. Yes, it is a little bit tedious, but he understands it so that you don't have to bother understanding it. Get your explanation there. Look, it's frustrating. We want to see goals. But these conversations, as they were after the Merseyside derby, are always framed around the team who had the goal disallowed. The injust however unsatisfactory that image might be, however much people might disagree with whether or not Sadio Mane was onside or offside, in those very tight offside calls, using the technology that we have and the rules, the laws as they are, and this is where any anger, anger should be directed, the injustice would have been if that goal had been allowed to stand. The team that would have been hard done by would have been the team that had lost the game as a consequence of a goal, however close, I say again, was shown to be offside, whether or not you agree with it. And I know the Sadio Mane one is the extreme, the most extreme example that we've seen. But these conversations are continuously framed around the team that had the goal ruled out, which is more likely to be the bigger, better, superior team, because as we've discussed before, these sorts of VAR decisions are more likely to impact the bigger teams because they spend more time attacking. So the extension of the conversation that's effectively saying it's frustrating these goals are being ruled out and maybe we should be allowing them to stand is effectively to say, sorry, slightly smaller, weaker teams, but you're going to have to accept that we're going to let these bigger, stronger, better teams that already have lots of other advantages score the occasional slightly offside goal because we don't like the delay and we get a bit frustrated that last-minute winners are being ruled out. Based on the evidence and the laws as they are, the injustice from the Merseyside derby would have been if Everton had lost the game to an offside goal. And that is effectively the problem that we have here at the moment. The way that these conversations are being framed is that goals of that nature could be goals that relegate teams. 
yes, the law, for, for everybody's sanity, the law needs to maybe be altered to bring in umpires call like they're having cricket. You know, if it's, if it's close, the on-field decision stands. I think that would be the best solution. But we can't say for the sake of entertainment and because these big teams have a, a huge fan base and therefore it drives the conversation and it's good for clicks and it's good for people listening on the radio, it's good for TV watches, that we allow these goals to stand to the detriment of the team that has conceded that last minute. That's not fair. Yeah, we want to see goals, but not so that it it ends up with a team losing a game that they shouldn't have lost. I think that's a really good point. And the, the aspect of it that, yeah, as Steve says, that, that, that it does kind of level the playing field ever so slightly. And, you know, these, the big teams generally have, have big advantages. I suppose the, the, the converse to it would be what happens if, if that goal comes in a relegation six-pointer and because it's not awarded, a team goes down, that you have been relegated by by a decision that is incredibly kind of tight. My, my, I think that the, the thing about entertainment and, oh, it's ruining our enjoyment of goals. I've noticed my, my reaction. I think everyone's reaction to goals now has changed. It's, it was a relief, actually, again, watching the Leeds-Wolves game when Jimenez scored. This, even though you knew there could be no offside, there's still part of you that's thinking, hmm, they'll find a way to rule it out. My, my issue with it is that I think that football's rules exist because we all as as a football sort of community agree to adhere to them and if there, there comes a point where we don't feel as though the rules are just then the rules have to change and the, the problem that I have at the moment is that it feels like the rules are being held up as some sort of holy book that ca- as though the rules came before the game rather than the game came, comes before the rules the other element of it that's relevant to the big teams having more of them is that each decision tends to be skewed by the tribalism, which says that, you know, because it's Liverpool or Manchester United or Arsenal or Spurs or Chelsea or, or Man City or whoever, that there is a, a vast swathe of people who are enjoying the fact that they have suffered at the hands of, of a VAR decision. But I think now, after what, a year of, a year, 15 months of VAR in the Premier League, I, sus- I suspect that every single team has one example where they feel they have been incredibly hard done by. And I think that it would be helpful if fans maybe stripped the tribalism out of it and said, all right, it was Liverpool this week, but it might be us next week or the week after. There is a problem with how legitimate we think these rules are. And that's what needs to change. It's not the, it's not the technology, it's the rule itself that has to change. Our reaction to goals, and it definitely has changed, clearly for fans it has, and for broadcasts as well, because I was, I was covering that Leeds-Wolves game. And Wolves score what looks like a quite brilliant goal with Pedence doing a bit of magic, crosses it, Romain says, smashes the ball in from the angle. And immediately as that goal goes in, a year ago when we didn't have VAR, I'd have been absolutely going to town on it. Great crossfield ball, great bit of wing play, brilliant finish. But instantly, as he strikes it in the back of the net, it's taken. I can't go to town as I used to do because I know there's always that. And then it came in very tight offside call. Bedence was actually judged to be offside and the goal was ruled out. So even as broadcasters now, we, we can't go and attack things as we, we probably did in the past, because it's always in our minds that there could be, even though they looked like there was nothing, I, I didn't even see or, or think there was a problem with Pedence's position at all. But then, very quickly, as soon as the ball hits the net, you're starting to think, ah, and you're going back and seeing well, where the problem might lie. And I agree with Rory, that goal, that, that, that compare that goal to the one that won the game, him and there's a deflection off Calvin Phillips and goes in, but you know that that goal's going to stand because there is absolutely nothing it can be chalked off for. But again, it's not as good a goal as the one that you were hoping would stand. So as broadcasters, it's completely changing and you're having to rein in because you don't want to go to town and say what an incredible goal this is. It could be a last minute, it's a last minute winner, what it means to the tip. Oh no, it's been ruled out. And So I thought I wouldn't do that 
I thought I'd still go to town as I did in the past, but you can't because it is changing. It's subtly changing without you even knowing over the course of the season, the games I've done with VR is changing how you actually commentate on it because it, you might sound a bit, even commentators, I think Steve probably to a degree are doing it yeah. as well. Then they're not giving it everything just, just in case it does get chalked off, which is a shame because again, you're losing that drama and you're trying to relay that drama to, to the viewer, but we're all in the, all in the same position. Yeah. If the decision, whether it be a tight one, if it's the right one, then, a goal has to be chalked off no matter how good it is. I have talked to other commentators about this and I think we've sort of discussed it from the point of view saying you still have got to give it the beans when you get a last minute winner because you'd sound even more daft if you underplayed a significant moment which proved to be perfectly legitimate. Because you're reacting to it instantly whereas a co-commentator, I've got a chance to see what's going on and see that VAR are getting involved. So I, yeah, I've got maybe another five, ten seconds that you don't have. So you, you would still go for it or do go for it. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the collective decision or certainly the discussion that we've, we've made. You've got, to, you've got to call the goal as you see it at the time and then the drama unfolds again afterwards with the consequence of the, of the reviews. So you, you still get, you're there, I suppose, to tell the story of, of the drama of the game unfolding and, and VAR is just a, a new layer to that. You can't allow it to replace the instantaneous moment. Just to finish then, a couple of... So Josh also used the phrase clear and obvious, sorry to be a bore, but it doesn't apply to offsides. So you can't talk about... At the moment, you can't talk about clear and obvious in terms of offside decisions with VAR. It either is or isn't. I do think we need to try and build in a grey area somewhere along the line. But I think the problem with that would be how big is the grey area? How how much are you allowed to be offside before you're too offside? And that's where the on-field umpire's call thing might work a little bit better. Uh, the other thing, that, that there's still so much confusion around this conversation. And I think that's really frustrating for people as well. Just to give a couple of examples, one renowned football correspondent for a Sunday newspaper reflecting on the Merseyside incident said, we should get rid of VAR. We've tried it. It's not worked. But we should keep the pitch side monitors that the referees can use at their discretion. What's it? You're getting rid of VAR, but you're going to keep the, the pitch side monitors. And that's a really senior football correspondent for a major newspaper saying that. And again, in the aftermath of what happened in the Merseyside derby, another major newspaper tweeting their match report immediately afterwards saying Pickford and VAR denies Liverpool. Well, unless Harry Potter has apparated the VAR booth to the goal line and it's cleared that last minute winner off the line, VAR hasn't denied squat, people. (laughs) And there ends another edition of, for fuck's sake, you don't go uh, to VAR. Uh, On a completely different and unrelated note, non-football note, I I have an update for listeners, uh, which I wanted to make, because we we have received word... No, no bears, but it is to do with forests, Chint. Uh, Oh, uh, we have received word, and long last, obviously, pandemic delayed, that my brother now has two benches in his honour. Two benches? Honor oh, in, um, amazing. In various bits of, uh, well, I say various, I mean two <laughs> bits of, uh, of dedicated woodland to him in, uh, across the north of England. Uh, and it reminded me that I wanted to say thank you to everybody who, uh, who felt moved to contribute to the, um, to the fundraising drive. Uh, to make that possible. So I just wanted to say, yeah, there um, one's in Bilton Beck near Nairsborough, one's up near Drassington, if you're ever in the area, uh, and you, you happen to sit on a bench, then check on, I think it's underneath. I haven't seen them yet. My sister-in-law and my mum have been to see them, socially distanced, 
Um, that's very important to say. But I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who donated. It was it was extremely kind, much appreciated, uh, and you are welcome to sit on those benches whenever you feel like it. Although that is also true of the general public. Uh, it was Rob's <laughs> anniversary recently, of course, Rory, wasn't it? So uh, it was, yeah. we all we send uh, lots of love to you and your thank family. You. Just can I, can I just clarify? Are these benches in tier two or tier three areas? I want to know how many people I'm allowed to sit on them with. They they well they're in uh, officially I think I guess they're in tier two. And I, this doesn't come from me, obviously, but I would suggest that people in the countryside are not particularly minded to think that the tears apply to them. <laughs> Maybe if you wear if you wear overalls and take like a, a work style flask with you, just to be sure, and then then you could just say you're having a meeting. Uh, correspondence of any kind to menu at gmail.com. Now. After talking last week about a specific plan for football's future, today we're going to spend a little bit of time considering its very existence and partly how the former might have prompted the latter. One of the points that we made, and Rory articulated very nicely in his piece on Friday, was that football in England is essentially Garth from Wayne's World made manifest. We fear change! That led to an interesting response from friend of the pod, John Nicholson of Football 365. He got in touch with us to note that although true in principle, on this occasion, it's not just simply a reaction to the prospect of change, but also, for many, another reason for them to mistrust all the major administrative stakeholders and suggest even the good parts of the Project Big Picture weren't made in good faith. Johnny says this group of fans, and I quote, hates what top flight football has become, feel disenfranchised, and that their loyalty and passion is abused. He has dealt with this, of course, in his book, that's Can We Have Our Football Back? Updated version will be out next month. So it's fair to say that John is very aware of how the relationship between the game and its supporters may be reaching breaking point. The overall issue is compounded by the timing of the piece in the Telegraph outlining the PBP plans because it came very soon after the announcement that the games not already covered by a broadcasting deal will be offered by those broadcasters on a pay-per-view basis. With Johnny in a message to us saying that while it wasn't a big deal per se, it was the last grain of sand that tipped the scales. All of that chimes in with another less time-specific notion on an email from Adam Taylor sent to us during the summer. Dear friends, thank you as ever for the podcast, says Adam. SPM is first among other podcasts I listen to, quite often five or six a day. I've no idea if this is a lot, but my podcast provider allows me to speed up podcasts and I listen to all that 1.3 times. Therefore, whenever I hear any of you on other mediums, also <laughs> Hugh on Five Live in the morning, it always sounds very strange. <laughs> you're talking more slowly than I have become accustomed to. I'd be interested to know whether Rory's butts are longer or more significant at normal speed, or whether I am missing out by speeding up Chinch's soccer stories. Yes, of course, and yes, of course. On a thematic point, I have, he says, seen a decline in popularity in other sports because of issues such as drugs, participation in schools, access away from terrestrial TV, the cost of playing or following, and quite often the dominance of football. But do you think there is a scenario where football has peaked? Is football complacent? What are its threats? Or am I being daft? All the best from Adam. So whether it might be through apathy or anger, is football at risk of seriously damaging its place at the centre of both the global and for us here, particularly in England, the domestic sporting landscape. Is the goose running out of golden eggs? And could football actually be facing the prospect of a genuine existential crisis, one that goes beyond the arguments that have been had over the last 10 days? The goose that laid those golden eggs ends up with the goose's owners killing the goose to find what they had supposed was more gold inside, but there wasn't. And there was to be no more golden eggs as a result. So the most important question is... Does that fable actually apply, or have I tortured the metaphor too much already? Uh, we are asking today, is football the goose or the owners, or the eggs? No, sorry. Can football die? And would football actually be the reason why? 
Some of what Rory was saying uh, earlier on bears fruit now. It obviously developed into an excellent newsletter on Friday. You can subscribe right now for free. Uh, so Rory, I w- wanted to start by just speaking more about the reaction that you might have had to that, because not only did you talk about the nature of the fear of change, but also then made your own proposals, which of course might have been reacted to in exactly the same way. Yeah, I think it, it, I'm probably characterising the response slightly unfairly. I just It was interesting how many of the responses that I read were tagged to both me and the, the FSA's Twitter account. And this isn't a criticism of the FSA or of the people who, who subscribe to it. Uh, the, but it's something I've been thinking about for, for, for quite a long time. And I think it's really, I think it's a really kind of almost heretical thing to say, but it's probably something we need to think about a little bit more, is w- which voices of fans do we listen to? So a lot of the kind of organized fan groups, whether it's here or in Germany or across the world, are a specific type of fan. They, they tend to hark back a little bit to, to football kind of pre-modern era, the kind of, let's say, you know, the pre-92 divide. There is a sense that it's all got too big for its boots, that it's, it's all too kind of swish and glamorous and money-soaked and, and craven and all that stuff. And they object to the changes that happened 30 years ago as being the start of a, of a long road. And I think that that, that obviously is, a massive, is, is an entirely valid viewpoint. But, but I always think whenever you, whenever you see those groups quoted, you tend, I tend to wonder, is that something that applies across the board? And the best example I can give you is I went to Germany in February for, for a story I may have told before and, <laughs> and spoke to people about the Monday night thing in Germany. So, the German organised fan groups hate the fact that Sky Germany arranged for there to be Monday night football and they've been protesting it for years and they've, they've managed to overturn it. And I think when, when the new bundles they did to TV deal kicks in, either next year or the year after, there will be no more Monday night games. They've got rid of them. And I spoke to a, a really lovely man called, called Mikhail Gabriel who, who helps to run one of the, the organised fan groups. They do a lot of social work. They're a really valuable organisation. He's a really interesting character. He played football as a kid with Jurgen Klopp. You know, he, but he's gone on to become a really significant figure in the German fan scene. And the German fan scene is something that we should all, outside Germany, envy and inside Germany cherish because it's really important. It keeps football in touch with its, with its community. But I sort of said to him, well, well, look, what about people who work on Saturdays? Like, they can't go to football matches because football, you know, the, the tradition is that in Germany, the football matches kick off at 2.30 on a Saturday. That's the time that football kicks off. And there is a substantial proportion of, of the organised fan groups who I think would prefer it if all games kicked off at 2.30 on a Saturday. And the Monday night things become, they kind of, I think they kind of accepted that some games are played late Saturday evening, some games are played on Sunday, it's still the weekend. But Monday night is a, is a bridge too far. And what strikes me about that is that the reason, there is a reason that football kicks off at 2.30 on a Saturday in the same way as that there is a reason that football kicks off at 3 on a Saturday here and it's to do with factory shifts ending. But it is my understanding that factory shifts now may well run for quite a lot of people through the weekend. Everyone who works in shops is working at the weekend. Everyone who works in restaurants is working at the weekend. There's huge numbers of people in the service industries and lots of industries who, who work at the weekend and therefore cannot go to football. And for whom actually Monday night might be a little bit more convenient, to be perfectly honest. There's a lot of people who play football at the weekend for whom Monday night might be a more convenient time to, to watch football. And his reaction was, no, was basically no, because football should kick off on a, should be on a Saturday. It's not fair on Monday night. It makes it harder for fans to travel. There are lots of reasons why you shouldn't play football on a Monday night. It means people have to take time off work, all that stuff. But it, it just made me think, I wonder whether there's a demographic, the, the demographics of those groups who tend to dominate the conversation are skewed a little bit. And it manifests in the same way here, that there's this sense that 
the dominant fan voices hate what football has become, there's probably quite a lot of people who've grown up with the way football is and who might not share that view, who might not think it was better before 1992, because they might not remember what it was like before 1992. Also, there's plenty of people who remember what it was like before 1992 and will tell you it's better now. You know, there's, that, that is also a valid view. So I think that the, the criticisms do tend to come from a specific demographic, particularly. But on a broader issue, I think one of the reasons that, thinking about this after I wrote that piece, one of the reasons that football is so resistant to change is that we all feel we own it individually. It is, we, we cherish and kind of lionise our own experience of sport. So we feel as though we have a stake in it. We are all stakeholders. And so when someone comes along and says we want to do it differently, we feel as though, A, we've been locked out of the conversation, and B, that someone is trying to change our experience of it. And I think that makes it really hard for anyone to suggest any sorts of changes without being accused of, of lacking authority or lacking credibility or having some sort of ulterior motive. And to be honest, most, most of the time, they do have ulterior motives. But at the, at the same time, that shouldn't be a reason to shut down thoughts of change because we can see that evidence is clear that the current system particularly in England isn't really working and that things need to be done differently in some way to some extent the risk is I think that because because of those two things because the, the main call for change is always take it back to what it used to be and because the resistance to the change is so high we tend not to get anywhere and we will end up sleepwalking into some sort of oblivion so the answer to the question from me is, is yes, I think football can die at its own hand. So if we um, agree that the resistance to change, and there is resistance to change in all parts of society, in all elements of political debate and theory, so, so, so that is something that is not necessarily specific to football, but it represents, as we have spoken about, and many different subjects ref re represents and reflects in football. If we assume that, that there is an anger and resistance to change, but that doesn't necessarily take into account all of those who have feelings on the matter, but perhaps takes into account those who speak the loudest about it. Where, where does the breaking point come? And, and that's really the, the, the subject of today's debate is that at what point, whether it is because of those fans who, who, who shout the loudest and have the most vociferous opinions on this matter, at what point, what is the straw that breaks the camel's back? In Germany, it was Monday night football, and there is a reversal in that. But it's, are the vested interests in English football more powerful to be able to resist that resistance? And so we're asking today, genuinely, is there a, the possibility of a breaking point at some point in the near future, which has been exacerbated by not only the coronavirus pandemic, but also the project big picture proposals and i appreciate rory said that they weren't necessarily proposals they were a starting point for conversation but still the project big picture proposals and the reaction to them what are the problems from that project big picture and the concert and the the fallout from the the pay-per-view thing is it's it's shone a light on things that might have been bubbling under the surface previously but perhaps were lost in the sort of general Football fans like to grumble, they like to complain about things, so a lot of those complaints don't get taken very seriously. But they all start to add up over time, don't they? And a lot of those people who feel like perhaps their voice hasn't been heard, who had genuine concerns that they've been raising and have been batted away, might use some of the detail, in, or have used some of the detail in Project Big Picture and this pay-per-view thing as as evidence that they should have been taken more seriously in the past because they would view the content of those proposals and being asked to pay £15 to watch West Bromwich Albion against Burnley as 
a consequence of those things all coming together, a manifestation of a lot of the things that they've been talking about, a lot of the reasons that they've become disenfranchised, a lot of the reasons that they, they distrust those at the top of the game who are making the decisions that they feel are to their detriment, that they think have taken the game away from them, whether they're right to feel that they owned football or football is something that is owned by the people and they shouldn't have to be increasingly paying more for a product that they believe someone has stolen away from them. But this, the hiatus and the fact that we can't currently go to football, we have praised the football community for getting games back on and for striving to get people back in attendance. But of course, something that they can't control is that people have had to find other things to do with their lives, that they, they've realised that there is, or there are things going on at, at weekends other than their match day experience and that's why the pay-per-view thing and and some of the the big picture content has come at a really bad time because it's mobilized the troops in terms of hang on a second this isn't right we're already paying significantly more for our match day experience for our watching football experience than we were at the very outset of the premier league and now you're saying hang on what you want more money from us now i was surprised at the the level of anger that came with the, the pay-per-view thing, because I suppose working in television, as, as, as Chinch and I do, and, and, and live televised football, we understand how expensive that stuff is to make and how difficult it was to be giving it away for free. But on the flip side of that, people have been making all kinds of sacrifices for the last six, seven, eight months. And a lot of those sacrifices have been financial ones, big financial sacrifices. So something that still is an incredibly cash-rich business might just have to suck it up for a little bit and say, do you know what? The one thing that we can do in the short term is to make games available. Yes, we might have to start introducing some, a bit of cost because, do you know what? It costs us an awful lot of money to make this stuff happen. But they massively overshot what that was worth to the consumer. Do you not think that the timing was particularly cynical as well, given that, as you say, we can't go to football matches? Yeah. It, it looked extremely exploitative. John Nicholson made the excellent point on Twitter that, that all football is pay-per-view, effectively, because you have to have a Sky or a BT or an Amazon yeah. Prime subscription to watch it. It felt like this was adding extra money to, to something you're always, already being charged for. Steve's completely right. It costs, it costs money to broadcast stuff. You know, newspapers just to pay paying chinch. For, just, just, just to pay chinch. chinch. Yeah. Exactly, I mean, yeah. How many yeah. people need to watch paying 15 quid a game to and, pay and, chinch? And, like. and, <laughs> and one thing just to add to that is that, because one argument people have made about the, the cost of it is that, well, hang on a second, you can watch these games all over the world. They, they go out as a world feed in other territories. We just don't get all, the, all of the live games here. But there is still the cost of the wraparound production that, that goes with that. You, you can't just say, right, well, there's a, that, that game is being beamed to Singapore, so we can just pick that up and dump that on the TV. There, would, there, would, there's still, there are still unbelievable associated costs to making that football match appear on your television screen. They might, they might be insubstantial in the grand scheme of things, but there is still a cost associated with putting football on the television. So at some point... In order for those games to be shown, there was probably going to have to be a, a pay-per-view model. However, it might have been better if they had prepared people for that a little bit 
more in advance and said, you know what, look, we'll get through October, we'll keep showing these games live, but from the start of November, we're going to have to try and find a different way because we were planning for crowds to be back in the grounds in, mm. in October and that's not happening. So we'll let you know, we'll, we'll keep the cost down, we'll, we'll speak to fans groups and find out what's reasonable. And by the way, we'll find a way for season ticket holders to have access to those games without additional cost because as a lot of people have pointed out, they've paid out in advance for their season tickets They've not got the money back for the games that they're missing. But if they want to watch them, they're going to have to pay again. And that is also badly, badly out of kilter with the way things should be. What, what was really interesting was the fact that neither the lead nor the broadcasters wanted to say it was them. So they've, they both seem to have said that the money is going to, to someone that isn't them, which suggest, suggests a little bit like they know, they, they know they've kind of messed it up a bit and that it's really unpopular and they don't, don't, they don't, they don't necessarily want to take the blame. I think Steve's totally right. There was probably a way to introduce this. I wonder if the way to do it was to, to advertise it effectively as an equivalent to, to the iFollow system they have in the EFL and say, look, we, we, will, we will broadcast these games. If you pay a fiver to your club, then you can watch it. And season ticket, get it, season ticket holders get it for free. You might maybe a discount for people who have fan cards or whatever who are on the, on the waiting list or on the, the lists for, for tickets. The, if you'd sold it to people as this is a way to get your clubs a bit more money, even if... if a portion of that then went to the broadcasters to reimburse them quite rightly for the cost of actually staging the broadcast. I think it might have been accepted. The fact that they went straight in at 15 quid, and I mean, without being rude about it, if West Brom Burnley is what your third pay-per-view offering, you, it doesn't give the impression that this is a kind of a must, a must-see experience. Even if Chinch is doing the West Brom game, it's not a must-see experience, and he wasn't. I'd pay 15 quid to listen to Chinch. But Thank I pay to, to be part of these Zoom calls. But you want to listen to me but not watch the game? Uh, ideally, yes. I just yeah. you talking for yeah. two that's, hours. That's 750. 750 <laughs> <Yeah>. audio. But, <laughs> no, hang on. No, Chinch, Chinch can just call just ahead of kickoff. If he calls Rory, puts it on speakerphone, just puts the phone down in front of him in the commentary position. That would do. And, yeah. and Rory can just listen to the commentary. Four quid. Four quid. Let's call it four quid. That's fine. It's a bargain. Just, just reimburse, reimburse him for his minutes. But what, what to me, unites this with Project Big Picture is, is that the underlying assumption of both things is that the appetite for football will never dim. And I don't think in either case that is the correct assumption to make. And, and one, of the, one of the parts of the question that we're posing, can football die and would football be the reason why? We should say football is not just those who run the game, it is, is also potentially fans. Because if we get to this point where the battle lines are drawn to such an extent that football refuses to appreciate the value of fans and fans refuse to sign up for anything that football suggests by way of change to the game and trying to progress it forward to a 21st century model, which perhaps isn't necessarily harking back to the old days in the ways that, that, that a generation and a group of fans might specifically be asking for. There is going to be a, an, a, a fissure, a, a, a crack between these two sides that could be irre irreconcilable to the point that suddenly it all breaks up and we're, we're in the situation where football has said, right, well, the fans aren't coming on board, so screw them. And the fans are saying football doesn't care about, the, doesn't care about us and what we care about, so we're going to turn away from the game. Is that, is that quite as wild as it might have sounded coming out of my mouth just then? Can I ask a rhetorical or not? Can I ask a question that's not rhetorical? Do you want a European Super League? Let's bring in Chinch, who's been 
wildly. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the. Uh, enjoy- do do I want a European Super yeah, League? Do you, Chinch, would, uh, if you're just going to sit like there and listen, watch it. But if no, Chinch no, no. I'm just going to sit there and listen. Listen, you've got yes. to pay. Uh, how much, Steve? Well, four quid. Four quid, yeah. Can I pay in hot dogs? No. No? Well, uh, on, how I... many hot dogs? But surely there, there has to be... Is it at a cost, a European Super Are we saying if we no, have no, a just, European Super League, the... XYZ happens? No, no, just just take, take all the massively complicated contingencies out of it. Would, would, you, would you find the prospect of, like, Juve against Bayern Munich and Manchester City against Real Madrid over the course of a season... Instead of a instead of domestic leagues, would you find that attractive? I'm I'm surprised it's not here by now because you're not again, the question. Uh, would you find it attractive? Would you want um, to watch? Yes, it? of course. I think you. Of course, you would. Absolutely, you would. Over uh, those games being played, rather like a, a a Champions League format. If it's played in a proper league format, absolutely. Because and those clubs presumably would want that as well. City well, don't want to be playing Burnley and West Brom with all due respect, and that's why I'm surprised. Really, if it is all about the money and the prestige of these clubs. The clubs that you're mentioning, surely that that would be the next logical step for the giant European clubs. Well, so this is but then what happens to everybody else if that happens? One problem that you get from that, Chinch, and and, and I agree with you with that that Manchester City might not want to play West Brom twice a season, but if they're playing Juve or Real Madrid four or five or six times a season, then that reduces in significance yeah, to the point where it might feel to them that they're playing West Brom. Of course, yeah, it depends on how many games, the, yeah, the, the, the teams, how many teams are in that league as well. I don't know how many, conceivably, how many teams would be in a European Super League. Well, how it, many are you talking? Would you, get, would you get 20 teams or not? You, well, we, you know, certainly if you included SC Copenhagen. The, um... <laughs> we have to include Copenhagen. <laughs> So the prob- part of the problem with it is that, that there's always a West Brom in whatever league. If you built a yeah. European Super League, at some point, one of those elite, glamorous teams would be the West Brom. Sorry, West Brom. Compo- uh, FC uh, Copenhagen. FC Co- I think FC Copenhagen might be Burnley. Uh, that is, that's harsh. That doesn't work. I think FC Copenhagen <laughs> might be Huddersfield. You know, Arsenal might end up being West Brom. Atletico Madrid might be West Brom. You know, it's, this is it's, just an op- operation mm. in trying to insult people uh, no, but you, <laughs> as much the, as possible. The point of a lead is there's always teams that finish bottom of it, and non, that's yeah. what none of them see. But the, the more interesting thing in, for the purpose of this conversation is that, so the working assumption of all the elite teams is that everyone wants a Super League. But I don't really know anybody who desperately wants a Super League, who's sort of crying out for, I wish this, they'd stop wasting my time with the Premier League and La Liga and the stupid Champions League and just crack on with playing Juve against Real Madrid every week. But I assume that somewhere someone's done the research. They, they can't be so stupid as to, 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 to not have factored into their conversations the fact that those games are special because they are rare. Mm-hmm. And as you say, if it happens even twice a season for 10 years, then all of a, all of a sudden it's a bit like, well, actually, I don't care about watching Juve, Juve Real, Real, Real Madrid might become... Leicester against Wolves, the equivalent of it might be, be so normal. Special becomes normal, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah special it becomes normal. Yeah, 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 yeah. The clubs cannot be so thick as to not have worked that out, mm. which suggests to me that there is an appetite for a Super League, but I just don't know where it is. And I, w- I wonder whether that's a function of the dominant voices in the conversation always belonging to fans who don't want that to happen, or whether it's because they've overestimated how much people actually want it. And again, there's this big threat that underpinning all of these, these changes is the threat that if you don't give us what we want, we will walk away and go and do our own thing. But I don't know if anybody's actually bothered asking loads of fans about that. Because I'm not sure there's... I'm not, I'm not sure, I think there's a general sense of it would be good to watch Juve play Real Madrid. But I'm not sure there's any, any sort of desperate yearning. Basically, I, th- I wonder whether football, big football, the kind of the, the executives, the governing bodies, the big clubs... I wonder whether they 
have have for so long got used to to imposing their vision of the game on the people who watch the game that they assume that the people who watch the game will swallow anything. So if you start a Super League, there'd be loads of people who, kick, who kicked off. There'd be lots of toxic arguments. There'd be lots of kind of accusations of greed, most of which would be accurate. Um, but in the end, people would watch it. I think that's probably how they, th- how they think of it. That they probably realise that, that rarity equals value, because they're not thick. But they think that after a while, the, uh, the objection would go down, would, would, the objection would, would sort of decrease. There'd be a sort of sense of, well, we'll give this a go, we'll see what happens. And ultimately, people's tribal loyalty to their clubs, and ultimately all those clubs that, that would form a Super League have got million, hundreds and hundreds of millions of fans around the world, that people's loyalty to their clubs would trump everything else. I don't know how true that is. You could maybe conduct some sort of large-scale piece of research to, to examine what people will actually swallow, but I... I think the, assum- the underlying assumption for all of it, for the pay-per-view thing, the project big picture, is that football fans, ultimately, their first loyalty is to their club and that whatever their club does, they will, they will still support their club, which is probably how most football fans think of, of their relationships to their clubs. But I, don't, I just don't know. And this is, this is caveated with the fact that, the, again, the conversation tends, tends to be dominated by certain objective, certain dissenting voices. I just don't know how true it is. I don't know. And I think the Super League's the best test of that. It's the best, it's the truest example of that. It's this thing that it is assumed that we will all want. There is an assumption that it would be incredibly popular and incredibly valuable. But you are making a massive mental leap in assuming that, that fans will, will be able to buy into that competition immediately, given that the equivalent, which is the European Cup and the, the domestic leagues, have got 130 years of history behind them at, at a maximum. And that, that that is what lends winning the league its value. That is what lends being champions of Europe its value. If they came up with a new big new competition, would it not just feel a bit like the interna- the international Con- champions cup? Would it not feel a bit like a preseason kind of false artificial construct? I don't know. And I just I think that's the problem is there is a, there is a difference between what clubs perceive as fans being willing to swallow and what fans are willing to swallow. And we we skirt closer and closer to that edge every passing year. There's already a good example of that, the, the Club World Cup, which should be prestigious, but doesn't really get treated terribly seriously by the, the European clubs who compete in it because it always lands at a point that's wildly inconvenient for them to travel and they end up with domestic games to make up. So there's, there's perhaps a lesson to be learned from that. I think that a couple of, couple of other things to pick up on is generally football takes itself really, really seriously, doesn't it? And something that has come out from the first weekend of pay-per-view action that I would concern me if I was running things at the top of the game is not so much the anger about having to, to pay for those extra games, but the jokes that have surfaced on social media as a consequence of the, the quality of some of those games. You know, people asking, you know, where, where do I collect my 1495 for having sat through West Brom against Burnley? Or, you know, where do I get my rebate from? That would concern me if I was running the game because people being angry is one thing. People taking the mick is something that can gather momentum potentially even more quickly and should be an example or should be a warning that although the horse might not have bolted yet, it has worked out that it's not terribly well tethered in the barn because that could get out of hand really quickly because one of the, pro- the other big problem with the pay-per-view model is that the big teams, the big games have already been selected 
button for live TV within the current subscription model. So those that are pay-per-view, it's not the same as the big heavyweight title fight in the run-up to, to Christmas. It's not the, the peak of the sport for that season or even that weekend. And we have to be realistic about that. So you have to be careful, not just about asking people to pay, pay extra money for games, even though those games weren't available in the past, by the way. That's the other thing that we haven't mentioned already. People complaining about having to pay for games that weren't part of the subscription model is another bit of the argument that seems to have lost its way slightly. But people are being asked to pay a premium for the not premium parts of the product but that might change that might change when they when they get to the next round of the next sort of tranche of fixtures that could be selected ah yeah but then you've got an even bigger problem because you've got the people who have paid in advance for their subscriptions Mm. on the assumption that they're getting the merseyside derby the manchester derby they're getting arsenal manchester united they're getting city versus liverpool if suddenly those games start disappearing onto pay-per-view and the yeah. ones that you've paid your relatively hefty subscription for are suddenly West, on them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. West Brom versus Fulham, then those people are going to be angry. And that was actually because because in, in the back and forth with, with John Nicholson, this is a really interesting point that he made, that we haven't got to the situation yet where people are cancelling their subscriptions. They've remained loyal in that way. But something that might happen is that, that new customers might not take up subscriptions and that's that's a longer term problem and something that that you know the the model relies on on new customers coming in to replace customers who have gone away and if you're if if the product that you're offering within that subscription model is not as good as it could be then then new customers aren't aren't going to buy into it then somebody might be able to crunch numbers and say actually we'd make more money from selling Mm -hmm. arsenal versus manchester united on a game-by-game basis but that, that isn't the way that the, the rights have been sold. So obviously the broadcasters would rally against that as well. I think that would be, yeah, understandable accusations of cynicism will be leveled at the broadcasters. Um, if, if that were to happen, you get the big games out of the pay, pay-per-view uh, offering. But what, another one of the points that, that John Nicholson makes, and we'll, and we'll finish with this, is that potentially, and we haven't reached this point yet because everything that isn't already part of the offering is on pay-per-view. So uh, fans at least can get eyes on every possible game if they're happy to pay for it, but an existential crisis, the very essence of an existential crisis could already exist if a pay-per-view game isn't offered. So you've got a game which is being played in front of no people with nobody potentially watching at home. That, that is a suggestion, the, the very essence of existentialism. Does it, does it in fact happen? Is it, is it a game? If nobody's consuming it at the ground, nobody is able to watch it at home. And I appreciate that this is an argument just for, just for England because you can watch it elsewhere in, in the world. But that, that suggests that we're already potentially just around the corner if they take the pay-per-view offering away, that we're already at a stage where, it's, where we're questioning the very relevance of a, of a game of football. It does call into question quite why you would play a sport that is supposed to be entertainment if it's not for anyone's entertainment. But I just wondered, did you watch Burnley West Brom? Uh, no, Steve? Uh, it was the first I have a young family. I have a young family, Rory. Yeah, e- was... Even if it had been available, I probably would have not been able to sit and watch or it. Or ask the children to pay. But it was the, it yeah, was the yeah, first, yeah. first nil. It's unfortunate it's the first nil-nil of the entire season, well, wasn't it? Well, so. was it? Because I, I didn't watch it. None of you watched it. I'm not sure anybody watched it. And if you were going to pretend you'd played a game... <laughs> That no one let's, watched. Let's all just, just agree. It draw. <laughs> is it an experiment? Is I, this I would query whether, whether Burnley West Brom happened. 
Do you think Sean Dyche and, uh, and Slavin Bilic and their team just sat in the dressing rooms for an hour and a half and then thought, right, we'll meet on the touchline, shake hands and slap each other's backs and we'll call it nil-nil? I wonder if Because no one's that. watching anyway. There's no, highlight, no highlights for you to be able to just pick up on your three-minute yeah, exactly. three highlights on, on whatever app you choose. There's no highlights to enjoy. So maybe they just fashioned a, uh, a, a, a like somebody shooting that went way over the bar and just made it a 20-second piece. Together. It might have been yeah. a better spectacle if we just filmed the players sat in the dressing room than actually if they'd gone out onto the pitch because there probably was no highlights in the game. We've I'm blown not, the I'm conspiracy not... wide open. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've not seen any highlights. I, d I don't know whether Sky showed any, but it was on a Monday night, so it wasn't, there was no match of the day slot for it. So, so it wasn't that there wasn't anywhere to show the highlights. There were no highlights. <laughs> the first yeah, game that's... that had nothing of merit to show. Just, on, if it had been on a Saturday match today, would have just been the, the, the kickoff and then the final whistle. <laughs> yeah. Which, which again, to, to, to support your conspiracy theory, they could have just done for the purposes yeah. of the camera. Did they play Burnley West Brom? How did they did get sweaty Burnley West Brom? those two highlights? <laughs> exactly. I'm not, I'm not sure that it happened. Well, there we go. Chinch, you wanted existentialism. You got existentialism. I, I've been drenched in existentialism. This has been, a, a, it's, it's been intelligent, it's been nuanced, and I've really enjoyed not taking part in it. Well done, you two. Don't <laughs> uh, you, you think, think in answer to the question about whether football, football won't die, football can't die, but there are lots of versions of football that people can go and That's embrace. Exactly it. Yeah. And certainly, you know, we, we know from here locally that lots of people are going to watch those teams outside of the top six or seven tiers is it that there are allowed spectators up to about around 300 spectators at the moment there is huge demand there's there's a game tonight locally uh, one of the withenshaw teams are playing west didsbury and chalton it's all ticket you've got to get your ticket in advance to go and watch a 10th tier football match and having done the early rounds of the the fa cup for the bbc which has been a really fantastic thing to do and have had the opportunity to speak to lots of clubs who play in the eighth, ninth, tenth tier of English football all over the country. They're all seeing an uptick in the number of people going to watch. And one conversation I had that was really, really fascinating was the manager of, of the team. I'm sorry, I can't remember which one it was. I think Soham Town Rangers who are in Cambridge, sir, Cambridgeshire, that their average gate was about 150. He said, if we could get that up to 200, it would absolutely transform our finances. So this is a club out there saying that if we could add 50 people to our gate, it would be a transformative experience for our club going forward and for the future of what we could do in our community. 200 people going to watch a game of football, a local game of football, where they could feel that their money was going to the greater good and they were, they were investing in a, in a community asset. And that might be the battle that big football has now, is that more and more people are discovering football on their doorstep and realising what they can get for a fiver and a few quid on a pint and a, and a pie. The, the, I did a piece on this the other, the other day. This is a boom time for non-league attendances. There's a lot of clubs seeing record crowds. There's, it's up to 650. You can have uh, 600 or 650 you can have in, at certain levels. Depending yeah, it depends on, on what, the, what level you're at. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's actually the best example of how ridiculous England's response to the coronavirus has been that you you've got teams who share a stadium and one of them's allowed fans and the yeah. other isn't. 
despite the fact they're all in the same place. Um, well, they're, they're I, either I, side of the FA Cup qualifying games as well. You can you could have away fans there yeah. because they're at one tier, yeah. but the home fans yeah. couldn't attend at their own stadium. We did hashtag United in one of the rounds, early rounds of the FA Cup, and they play at Bowers and Pitsy in Essex. Hashtag played at home one night in the FA Cup, and they were allowed 300 people. Bauer, Bauer and Pitsy played the following night in the same stadium, in the same competition, at the same stage of that competition, and were allowed twice as many people. Yeah, the, 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 whole, the whole situation is insane. But Steve's, Steve's absolutely right that football probably won't, football won't die. As, as a, it won't be like in 20 years' time, no one's playing football. But this iteration of football won't last forever. And the question that bid football has to ask itself is, is how complicit does it want to be in that change? And how much does it want to protect what it's got? You, you mentioned earlier on about the rules being a holy book and that the rules cannot be changed because it, there seems to be some sort of consensus that, that something that was created in a different world and a different, for different reasons cannot now be you know, reconsidered and, and, and repurposed in some way. It's the same principle about football as a whole. It's, it's for some reason held up as this, this holy book that will never die, but there are possibilities that I think we've illustrated that suggest that perhaps uh, that a warning bell should at least be sounded. Well, I suppose the, 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 the issue is when we talk about football, I'm talking about English football now, what do we actually mean by football? We've got the Premier League, we've got the EFL, we've got non-league football. Is, is that what we consider to be right or do most people consider that to be how it is and that that is football in this country and that's what we need to protect that needs to be the same in 20 years time because it seems whether it's to do with the virus or anything else or maybe just the, the, the flow of finances and football in itself over time that will probably change anyway but is that what people are trying to protect and say this this is what we consider football to be it cannot be changed for anyone or anything or any amount of money uh, I'm interested to hear, uh, Seppi's menu at gmail.com, from, from casual football fans. Could, could football lose the casual fan because of the lack of access, the perceptions of greed of the top clubs and the game itself? Are you that fan? Are you a casual fan? And do, do these discussions um, ring true with you at all? Seppi's menu at gmail.com. Now, I mentioned earlier that the food related to this week's podcast will be revealed in the soccer story. Well, here we go. This will make the teasing completely worthwhile because it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel-worthy details removed. This is where there's a change of gear in the pod. We go from sublime to ridiculous. So what an intelligent, vital conversation we've just had. Now I'm gonna, I feel a bit ashamed now to tell this story off the back of, of everything that's been said mainly by other people and not me. But this is uh, the most recent championship game I did was, uh, I say game, it was appalling. It was Derby against Watford. And it was on a Friday night. And because of all the problems with COVID and the amount of people that you're allowed at games now, um, sadly, the catering that, that, that Sky have on an on a outside broadcast is normally sensational. It's absolutely brilliant with kind of, not hog roasts, but there's certainly warm, filling food on offer that's all been scrapped because people clearly can't come to games and that can't happen anymore so if you don't kind of stop at a petrol station and get a sandwich on the way to the game you can be a little bit hungry it's a quarter to eight kickoff so you're getting a bit hungry and you've got a job to do a lot of thinking to do so as a group i'm not saying that i kind of made this happen but it was somebody else's idea we thought well we need to try and get some food in from somewhere for everybody so the idea came up of ordering some pizzas in for the, for the game it, it makes perfect sense doesn't it because everyone's hungry there's the cameramen everybody else right we'll order some pizzas so i clearly i'm going to pay for them because i'm a, a i'm a, a big wig i'm well paid i'm not gonna i'm not gonna kind of shell out for, for pizzas for the people that's ridiculous people should be buying them for me which is what happened 
But as when he gets around six o'clock for a quarter to eight kickoff, you, the, the pitch side reporters and the floor managers, never, they get very busy because there's manager interviews to do, there's player interviews to do. So they, they order these pizzas on, online, obviously, to, to get delivered to the trucks, which is in the compound outside the ground. So we're all stood around and it gets to about six o'clock and apparently these pizzas arrive in quarter past six. So we get the teams get, get kind of released at half past six. So it's quite important for a co-commentator to know what the teams are. It's part of my job. Um, but everyone starts looking around and thinking, well, these pizzas are going to arrive in the compound for the, the delivery line is going to be there. Who can we send outside to go and pick these pizzas up? And I'm looking around thinking, well, he can't do it because he's busy. Cameramen are busy. They'll be doing these shots. Yeah, there's the interview. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You want me to be Fry from Future Armour, the pizza delivery boy? No, I, hang on a minute. I've got seven England caps. I'm one of the, the premier pundits in, in world football, not just English football. You want me? Well, you're not busy, are you? And I said, well, technically no, but should I? Be? Haven't we got a runner? Is there any young person we can send out? 17-year-old? Anyone 17 years old? Can you go? No. I had to go out to the trucks the guy was late, so I stood there about 25 past six. The teams have been released at half past six, and they're not, they don't come on your phone or anything like that. They're on a bit of paper, so you need to be there when they're released. So I'm thinking, hang on, I've got a major job to do it. The guy turns up in his Nissan Qashqai, nothing against the car. value for money, and it's a, it's a terrific drive. But he <laughs> goes down, and I'm stood there. He says, oi, yes, uh, are you waiting for pizzas? Y yes. So he goes to the back of his car, brings out the, you know, these heated like, envelope, pocket things they have. That he brings three pizzas out, giant like dustbin lid pizza, roasting hot. I've got no gloves. I wasn't prepared. So then I have to go back, trudge through the ground. And okay, there's not that many people at, at games anymore, but there's plenty of stewards, COVID work, everyone. And they're all looking at me thinking, they clearly know I am because I'm a, quite a big wick. Certainly in the NFL, definitely in the Premier League. They're thinking, what's he doing carrying pizzas for other people but that's what i've been reduced to it gets worse because as i arrive back pitch side it's bang on half past six the teams have just been released watford had just been out having a look at the pitch they all troop back past me i'm stood there the co-commentator par excellence with a stack of pizzas ben foster stops gives me the elbow to elbow to say how are you doing mate you okay and then he says what are you doing? And I say, Ben, you're absolutely right. What am I doing? I'm here to cover the game and I'm standing with a, a, a kind of, I've got three pizzas here, a tower of pizzas for other people. But the worst thing, everyone's starting to take pictures of me standing there with the pizzas as well. These pictures have done the rounds. I think even you, Hugh, I've sent, why did I send you one? It is hilarious. But Ben Foster is in that picture looking at me aghast as if to say, you are the best, Chinch. What the hell are you doing delivering pizzas to these idiots? and embarrassing you wouldn't get gary neville doing that would you for the team so i took one for the team did the right thing but it's massively backfired but what a lovely hot pepperoni pizza gary weaver and i shared on the gantry it i heard delicious. that gary neville is transported everywhere by sedan chair <laughs> is that tr is that right next well, contract change next contract and deliveroo Ooh. brings him sushi to the gantry <laughs> i don't need deliveroo i have Stephen wyeth to de de deliver my sushi Oh yeah, we yes we did share sushi. We did, we did in the in the in the booth we did perspex. Oh, screen how the other half live. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And when I say the other half, I mean Gary Neville. Please subscribe, share, rate, review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy, and Stephen, and a delivery pizza man in a Nissan Qashqai. And to you all for listening. We'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Chinch, just just wondering. Do you do Koshkai's in and what's the uh, what's the daily rate? <laughs> um, 
I could do you. I could do you a deal if you watch one of my pay per view. Watch one of my games. I'll I'll sort you a car out. Okay, that sounds that sounds like a, sounds like a good. It might deal. not I mean, be. A, it might not be a cash car. It will probably be a smart car. What is the excess? Um, well, it depends what you want to pay. That's a fair point. Do you do it's that? It's a sliding thing? scale. It's a sliding scale. How do I know all these things? What am I talking about? I am not dealing in higher cars, people. Can I just make that clear? Do you, do you do that thing where they offer you the extra insurance and you don't take it, but then because you haven't taken it, you drive around in that car for a day, a week, however long, terrified that something's going to happen, it's going to cost you 1,500 quid? Yeah, and then you, you come back, that? park it on my drive, I scratch it with a key and then say, right, you owe me 1,000 quid. <laughs> that's, how, that's how these ten things tend to go down. The not, only the first, on the, not the first on the illegal thing that, that we're suggest, yeah, suggesting <laughs> that Andy Hinchcliffe is responsible for. What's N Nissan Qashqai or something similar? What's the worst version you could get of a kind of a kind of a mid-range SUV that Chinch will give you when he says Nissan Qashqai or something similar? We, uh, we could get into a world of problems that any car dealer or, or car manufacturer is going to be very disappointed if we throw a name in here and say, especially you know, if you have existing relationships with them providing you with hire. I get some, I get some poor, what I would consider to be poor cars delivered for work, but they end up being decent drives. Skoda's in particular, I think they have a bad rep. But I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy the Octavia. It is a dream of a drive. I, on thought, the I, I saw you behind the wheel of a Skoda recently, Chinch. I thought you looked very comfortable. No, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I'm not a Skoda driver. Let's make that absolutely clear. You were driving, like driving a Skoda, Skoda when I saw, when I saw you, Chinch. It's obviously a long time since I've been to anyone's house, but it's also a particularly long time since I've been to Chinch's house. My main takeaway whenever I went to see Chinch to record this podcast was that there is a rotating cast of cars on his drive. It changes every week. And now, finally, I understand. <laughs> He's renting them. Do you know what's happening? I think the car rental companies just use my driveway as another place to store their cars because they just don't pick them up. And then I have had at one point, I had three hire cars. <laughs> I, I, didn't want, I didn't do it on purpose. They just didn't pick up the previous ones. I've had them sat there for like 10 days. And that's where the that's business nice. idea came to him. Uh -huh. <laughs>